On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast, with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for Scott Thompson, the NDP and the Hamilton Spectator both received a report showing that the Ford government's numbers for the LRT may have been high, at least that's the suggestion. What does this mean for the LRT? Does it change things? Should the government now start building it? Well, we'll be talking about that. We're also going to talk about Governor General Julie Payette. Lots of drama swirling around the Governor General and Rideau Hall these days. A bit of a soap opera, which never happens with the Governor General. We'll discuss and how well are the TV networks doing with the NHL. No crowds, different circumstance, unique setup. How are they doing? Stay with us. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Buenos dias, mis amigos. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson on the Scott Thompson Show. Hope all is well. We have a huge show for you today. Just this morning, there was a press conference um, with the NDP, with Andrew Horvath, the leader of the NDP, who, uh, this was about the LRT. And it's about a document that the Spectator got and the NDP got as well. Now, it's a heavily redacted document, a lot of black lines in it, but it raises questions about whether or not the $5.5 billion price tag that the Ford government has put on building the LRT and maintaining the LRT is, is accurate. And this is the, uh, the number that was given when the project was shelved. And now there are questions about whether that number is right. And if it's not right, if it's too high, what does that mean for the project, if anything? Let me bring in Carl Anders. He is VP of Community with the Hamilton Community Benefits Network, and he is with Raise the Hammer. Carl, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Scott. Uh, would I be, uh, I don't want to put any words in your mouth here, but I'm guessing your position based on this report that we now know something about, we haven't seen all of it, but your position would be the government fudged the numbers to create an excuse to get out of building the LRT. Um, you don't have to put words in my mouth. That's been my position actually since the uh, Ford government canceled the project. The, uh, original price tag was, uh, a billion for infrastructure and about 3.7 billion over the lifetime, the life cycle of the entire project. It's now shown that those numbers were actually correct and both activists, opposition parties, and even the mayor's office was correct in calling out the Ford government on those numbers. So again, for people who haven't followed this entirely closely, are we simply talking about, and when I say simply, I mean, it's still a lot of money, but a billion and 3.7, that's a 4.7 billion versus 5.5. So are we talking about 700, 800 million dollars here as the, the issue that's, that's created this whole mess? Well, no, we're talking about almost a $2 billion gap between those numbers. So the $3.7 billion includes the $1 to $1.2 okay. billion to okay. physically build the system. And then the rest of it is the cost of the interest on the system and the maintenance and repair and operation of the system over the life cycle of 30 years. Okay. So what, what is your, we have been told, and you can, people can believe or not, but we've been told that the, the government, right now says that billion dollars for transit, for transportation still exists. The, the billion that was initially promised is still mm -hmm. there for Hamilton if they want it. If that's the case, what difference does it make for the government, which project it goes into, whether it's LRT or something else? 
Well, I guess the, 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 the biggest um, thing to talk about with this is that this project's been 15 years in the making. It's the only shovel-ready infrastructure project uh, in Hamilton that could also generate COVID stimulus. And there's already been a lot of work behind the scenes. Nearly $300 million was already spent in both property acquisitions and contracts and um, development and technical drawings. So there's, there's already been a lot of work that's been done in this project. So if the government chose to, say, a, a different route for a different set of projects, they'd be going back to the drawing board. That means new environmental assessments. That means a whole new set of design, planning, uh, tendering. So it, it basically means they'd be going to square one, whereas this, this project's ready to go. No, and I, and I think a lot of people take that position for sure. We've heard that a lot, that this is that all that money, those millions of dollars, $100 million, whatever, $300 million has been spent to buy land and everything else. But why? what would be your belief of why the Ford government is anti-LRT? If they're still going to give a billion dollars either way, why do they care what project it goes into or doesn't go into? Well, I think the, the Ford government um, is looking to to find a way to to, to backpedal on that position. They're getting a lot of um, bipartisan uh, across the political lines. We're talking support from the Chamber of Commerce, from uh, builders and developers, as well as social activists, public transit activists. So I think the Ford government made a mistake, and they're looking to find a way to backtrack from that. And I think they, they did that because this was originally a liberal project. Um, so and it, it was created under the, the Wynn government, as you know, when, when the Ford government came in they 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 were swept in on an anti-win agenda so i think part of the that hamilton rt kind of got caught up in that as well as you know the the wind farms and a couple of other projects that the uh, liberal government had put forward so kind of got caught into an uh, anti-liberal perspective that the ford government brought in and um, it's right to question as opposition and government previous government's projects but i think this project kind of got caught into some political hysteria Right, so it became a political thing because if the wind government did it, it must be bad, therefore we must stop it. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that was the case, and I think this, this project, um, it's, it's not just supported by the NDP or the Liberal government. As I said, there's a lot of conservative voices that are talking about this as a, an infrastructure stimulus project that can, can really help Hamilton come out of some of the job losses we're seeing from COVID-19. So I, I, I hope the Ford government takes to heart that this, this isn't a political issue. This is a, a, a capital investment in Hamilton that will benefit every Hamiltonian. And that's certainly what the Chamber of Commerce's um, return to business. They, we, we had them on the other day talking about their, their plan for getting things back. And that's certainly their position as well. The, the infrastructure and the, the getting it going, the, the impetus to, to move the economy. Do you believe that the billion dollars is there? I, I mean, this has always been the question is, is the billion dollars really going to land in Hamilton? Do, are, are you a believer that that billion exists? Well, at Infrastructure Ontario earmarked it and it was budgeted. The Auditor General's office um, outlined the project and the billion was just the splash that the Liberals put out. But it was actually, as I said, $3.7 over 30 years. Um, and it, it was budgeted as a capital project. It's a, a design-build finance. So what that means is that um, the, a consortium will build the project, finance the project, and we pay them the, uh, the interest on, on the, the money. I don't know. Like The, the thing is with, with government spending is there, there isn't a bank account where the government just pulls money right. from. The government, for every infrastructure project, um, 
believing that that infrastructure will generate more wealth and more investment in the city. Um, they do borrow against that money. But right now, interest rates are at such a low rate that the government is practically borrowing for free. And, and you know, money, look, I, I think that for a lot of this, money does become an issue. I mean, there are some people, Carl, we know there are some people who just hate the idea of LRT, period. Uh, that's mm-hmm. fine. That's their position. There are others who look at this, I think, a little more pragmatically, whether they're in favor or not in favor and say, okay, let, let's have the discussion. But even if we, let's eliminate the 5.5 billion that this that the conservatives came out with. And let's say for, for just for now, that's not the real number. The real number is what you have said and what's in the report. And we're talking about, and this report says a $2.3 billion capital cost. Mm-hmm. A billion dollars, we know, assuming it's there, a billion dollars is ready for us from the province. Where does the other $1.3 billion come from right now? Well, I, I, and I think you have to look to the, the federal government who has made announcements saying that they are really ready to support shovel-ready projects. Uh, Catherine McKenna has already said, stated publicly that Hamilton LRT is on the government's radar and they're willing to work with the province. I also think you have to, to remember that projects like this generate so much ripple effects. So you, you build an LRT line and around that comes development and around that comes new revenue and tax bases for the city of Hamilton. There's also 5,000 jobs that this would literally generate. And that's not ripple jobs, that's actual project jobs themselves. And those 5,000 uh, construction workers, they're going to shop at local restaurants. They're going to spend that money locally. So we, we, when we're talking about this kind of capital investment, um, it has a, a ripple effect that, that benefits a, a broad section of society, not just those working on the project, not those employed in the project. Um, so when, when we're talking about this, I think the federal government has already indicated they're willing to step up and, and help the province if needed to, uh, to make this a reality. So, um, I mean... The Ford government and the, and the, uh, the Liberal government uh, in Ottawa should be getting together to, to talk about what's best for Hamilton and kind of put partisan politics aside. That, I mean, and look, I, I don't think you're being naive, but I think that, you know, when we're in a pandemic now and they seem to be getting along okay, but I, 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 I hate to be so negative, but I think that when life gets back to normal, politics will probably get back to normal as well and, and everything won't be so huggy and cuddly. But here's the other issue. Um, in the last number of weeks, months, we have heard just in the last number of days, we've heard demands for tons more money for education. We've heard demands for lots more money for long-term care. We heard yesterday, I think it was the demand for lots more money for autism yesterday, lots more money for personal support workers. We've heard in the last week, lots more money is needed for childcare. And then there's a bunch of other things. And then you throw the LRT into this porridge of demands from every corner for money and i'm wondering well i'm not sure it doesn't just get lost in that because everybody from every corner is saying we need money oh absolutely there's there's a a great demand for stimulus spending from the government but i I suppose i'd like your your listeners to understand that um the kind of investment we're talking about generates wealth gets people out and, and and working, and um, it, I don't think it's an either-or situation. I think that the governments at both levels need to take a, a, a serious look at, at prioritizing spending right now. The more money that they put back into the economy as, as government stimulus, the more jobs it generates, the more people that aren't on, on social assistance, aren't on curb, and they're out there, they're working, and I think it can be done safely, and, and I don't think it's an either-or argument. 
One other thing, Carl, and, and again, you, your argument may in fact be absolutely true, that it doesn't have to be either or, that it will create jobs. And I don't think anyone's disputing that jobs will be created, even those who are opposed to it. I don't think they are saying that there won't be jobs in construction and stuff from this. In the report, it does seem to point to the, all, all the maintenance costs and the the that kind of thing, which, if I'm correct, falls on the city, does it not? The, I mean, the city is going to have costs incurred from this. So the, the, the city will accrue some of the um, operations costs and the maintenance costs will fall on the consortium that, that builds it. But the operations costs, well, like going back for years, have already been debated in front of uh, city council. And we're talking about costs that aren't much more than the, the city's already spending on, on transit. Um, and and the ripple effect, if we look at Kitchener-Waterloo, what happened there with the development boom that happened, the, uh, the LRT in Kitchener-Waterloo paid for itself three times over in terms of its operating costs and, and revenue, and Kitchener-Waterloo actually put up some of their own money to pay for their system. This, at least, we're looking at the, the federal and provincial government shouldering the majority of the cost for us, which is a, a, a sweet deal that not many municipalities get. Right. So, so it's your view, though, that yes, there will be some cost to the city, but even though Hamilton right now has a massive deficit, the operating deficit from the COVID and everything else, this is not something that makes it impossible to do. No, I, I, I think what you're, you're going to see is, is once we get these, this shovel-ready project in the ground, the development costs that will come from high-density uh, construction along the LRT corridor will increase the tax value. Say, for example, we've got a ton of empty parking lots along the LRT corridor, and those are generating maybe a couple thousand bucks for the city. If you put a, even a 10-story building on that, all of a sudden that's generating hundreds of thousands, maybe a million dollars in, in, in property tax revenue for the city. The LRT cost is conservatively put at um, uh, $6 million for operating, maybe $8 million a year. The, the thing is, we never got to see the final bid that comes out that would tell City Council what that final cost was actually going to be. But it's, it's not uh, insurmountable. And I think that uh, not only do I think, the, um, the facts and reports show that the property uplift and the, the new development that will come from LRT will more than, than pay for the city's operating costs. Carl, we only have a second left here, but going back for just a minute to what we talked about a moment ago, with all the demands from every corner for funding from the province and from the federal government, what comes out of this report and this press conference and anything today? I mean, does they, do, do you expect, truly, do you expect that the province is going to say, you know what, yep, we're going to fix this and go ahead, or does it become a lot of noise because they're, you don't expect that anything is going to happen? I mean, are you an optimist? Or do you look at this I, I and say, optimist. well, we're making really, our case? I, I, I think COVID-19 has even shown that the, the Ford government can can make some accommodations and is, is willing to, to change positions in, in light of, of new alternatives. So I, I do think that they, they will let this once-in-a-generation opportunity for Hamilton go forward. Um, I, so, yes, I am an optimist. Carl Andrus, who is not only an optimist, but he's the VP of Community for the Hamilton Community Benefits Network, and he's with Raise the Hammer. Carl, really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There has been lots of discussion in recent days about our Governor General, which is entirely strange since no one ever talks about the Governor General. It's just one of those positions. If there is a position in Ottawa, in government, that is probably less known about, that is less thought about, I don't know what it might be. 
I mean, it's largely seen as a ceremonial position, the Queen's representative in Canada. I mean, how controversial can that be? Well, plenty controversial, as it turns out. Reports have emerged in the last week or two of Julie Payette being mean, being difficult, being standoffish, and a bunch of other words. A number of staff have resigned claiming workplace harassment at Rideau Hall. 16 different people told the CBC that she yelled at them, belittled them, publicly humiliated them. That Those are their words, by the way, and CBC's words. Her chief of staff is accused of bullying workers. Two dozen people have reportedly re- uh, reported abusive contact and conduct by Payette or her chief of staff. And now we're learning that Something like 200, more than $250,000 has been spent at Rideau Hall to acquiesce to her demands that the place have greater privacy for her, yet she still apparently hasn't even moved into her official residence. Peter Grafe is a professor of political science at McMaster, a familiar voice here on the show. We always love having it. Peter, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. A uh, simple question. What the heck is going on? Well... I mean, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of, I think, different things going on, but a lot of it revolves around uh, presumably the personality of the Governor General. I mean, uh, Ms. Payette, uh, as an astronaut, has already a pretty uh, unique uh, uh, professional background, uh, presumably someone who holds herself to very high standards, and uh, likewise those who work with her. Uh, She had spent some time at the Montreal uh, Space Centre, uh, and uh, recent investigations seem to suggest, you know, similarly, a fairly aggressive management style. Um, similar stories about people feeling uh, humiliated and belittled in meetings, uh, although at the same time, a sort of grudging respect for, you know, her capacity to get things done. So, I mean, it seems to be it's that, it's that personality who was uh, appointed as uh, Governor General. A somewhat odd uh, position in that the Governor General has a lot of well, I mean, has a complicated job in terms of hosting, you know, foreign receptions, uh, but also, you know, as the head of the armed services, the symbolic head of the armed services, a lot of work involved with the Canadian uh, military. Uh, so there's, you know, a complex set of jobs involved. And again, I think part of the the other issue that's come to the fore with this latest uh, rev- revelation is, you know, is uh, Madame Payette uh, ultimately a very uh, um, well, I don't know if secretive is the right word, but sort of a shy person, someone who doesn't uh, care to be that much in public, um, you know, again, which maybe uh, influences some of these things. But all of that really amounts to saying uh, someone appointed by the prime minister, uh, you know, was a proper approach followed that might have taken into account some of these particular personality traits, which maybe don't fit very well with what's expected of someone in that job. You just said an awful lot of things that I want to get into, but let me just start with this one. Is it not, am I wrong that most people, when they hear the word governor general, they think of it, whether it's fair or not, they think of it as a rather benign position. It's a figurehead. It's, it's a representative. People don't necessarily think of it as a very active position. Yeah, I would tend to agree. Uh, I mean, we don't often see the governor general except maybe at a Canada Day uh, ceremony, and then obviously at the opening of uh, Parliament. Uh, but then again, not many Canadians are going to follow the throne speech closely. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's not it's, it's someone we know we have. Um, but again, who is in that position is something most Canadians probably weren't really aware of until these stories came out about two weeks ago. 
This is, um, you mentioned about in, in her previous position in Montreal with the Space Museum, there was this, there was also, if people remember way back when, she, I think it was her first throne speech, there was controversy that emerged right away because um, people said she was mocking Canadians who had religious views. And, um, you know, the, the position was, look, this is not your role to be dividing the country. Um, being divisive is not part of this job. I, I when it starts that far back, I wonder if she is even aware of how she's being perceived by people around her. I, I wonder, I mean, she's a very accomplished woman. There's absolutely no question about that with her work in space and everything else. I just, a lot of that is in teamwork, but I do wonder with a lot of these things, if there's just a lack of recognition, this is how people are interpreting what she's doing. Yeah, that could be. I mean, it may also be that if you're a highly successful person, um, you maybe don't understand what you have to give up to take on this role. Uh, because you're acting as a Queen's representative, uh, you lose your ability to, to be yourself in important ways. And so, I mean, there have been, uh, you know, a number of situations in throne speeches where she's wanted to add her own words, you know, which is not appropriate for someone who's meant to be, uh, you know, they're reading the speeches presented by the government and playing the role uh, of the Queen. So I, I think in a variety of different ways, uh, We've seen uh, a difficulty in having to deal with the limitations of the role. Now, I mean, there's also possibilities in it. I mean, and, and previous uh, governor generals have found ways to leave their own mark on the position. I mean, Adrian Clarkson, for instance, did a lot, I think, to uh, bring back and develop uh, the, the point of the symbolic link to the military. I mean, it, it helped that at the time uh, we had the deployment in Afghanistan, and so that was much more in the public eye. But... You know, that was something that she certainly brought out. And I think Mikhail Jean, in her own way, also thought about the linkages with the Indigenous peoples in Canada in a, in a more complex way. So there are ways to make uh, contributions as a governor-general, but they, they're not obvious, and it does require a lot of, I think, stepping back. So if you're used to being the person running the show at the Montreal Space Centre, if you're used to being someone making important decisions uh, in terms of being an astronaut, and having, you know, a certain kind of control over situations, it must be very frustrating to be in a position where your days are really tightly regimented about who you're meeting when, but where ultimately you can't really do that many of your own projects because your job is to, you know, receive foreign dignitaries, is to do symbolic, different kinds of symbolic ceremonies with different constituencies. It's not to really innovate or do new things. Should that have been something, that, that would be something you would know when you would take the role though, Correct. Yes. Or should? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, again, we could, uh, you know, is it a case of uh, the dog that's caught the car? Sometimes you, uh, you know, like an idea, but you don't really <laughs> think through all the consequences. Uh, but some of it, too, I think uh, there were a lot of criticisms in the early years of the Trudeau government about being very slow and plodding and making appointments and sometimes valuing, you know, the name of the person rather than their fit with the job. And, uh, you know, that has a bit of the hallmarks of this as well, where given... You know, wouldn't have taken that many phone calls to figure out a management style of the Montreal Space Centre. Um, if someone is a somewhat private person, that probably shouldn't have been too hard to figure out either. So, so why those things didn't figure uh, among people appointing someone to a job, which involves a great deal of relationships with the public, and uh, I mean, it's sort of the job of uh, 24/7 small talk at all these receptions, you know, eating canapes and so on. Uh, <laughs> the, the fit was not great. There weren't a lot of canapes in space, I'm guessing. So maybe that was a real lure that, you know, all the canapes you can eat. 
<laughs> this is um, what what really surprises me, and maybe this I don't know if this surprises you, Peter, but it's the number of people seemingly that are willing to talk about this. We we don't often hear numbers of people who will come out and talk about these things. The fact that the CBC says they've got, I think it's 16 people who have spoken to them. That, that to me is kind of stunning. Yeah. I mean, it's a weird uh, job at the, at the governor general's in that the lines of accountability for the most part, if you're making complaints, you know, go upwards, which is ultimately the boss. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, unlike in the broader uh, civil service where you'd have more opportunities to bring forward complaints. So, I mean, I think some of it is related to that. But, yeah, clearly there's a broken a broken system when there's that many people who are unhappy. And, and again, unlike the situation in the Montreal uh, science, uh, Space Centre, where it seemed that employees nevertheless felt that good things were happening, in the case of, of Madame Payette at uh, Rideau Hall, it doesn't seem like there's some kind of compensating set of successes where people can like, deal with the, the sense of abuse that they're receiving um, in their in their interactions. Uh, I mean, early on as well in, in Madame Payette's uh, time as uh, Governor General, you know, there were some complaints by the monarchists of Canada who said she was unwilling to come to their events like, you know, previous Governor Generals had. Uh, there was some question about whether there was a, a sufficient number of, of public events and outings. So, and it's it's not the there's not a sense that this is a governor general who's accomplishing great things or serving the communities and so in that context I can imagine a bad work, work culture gets worse because it's hard to say well what are we really moving towards you know is it worth enduring some of this well maybe it is if in fact you get to accomplish projects which are important but if things aren't working then uh, yeah I could see uh, people getting quite upset. There were a couple of people I talked to this morning um, and this topic came up. And the question that both asked was, do we really need a governor general anymore? Well, and Peter explained that. Why, why do we need a governor general? It costs us money. Um, clearly, you know, we're in a situation here where some people would say, well, this is not something we need to be dealing with. Why do we need to have one? Well, I mean, there's, there's uh, I think, two big reasons. The first and most important is that in our system of government, uh, you need someone that, the, uh, that ultimately is able to hold the responsibility between governments. So in a situation uh, you know, where it's unclear about which party has a majority of uh, support in the legislature and therefore the right to form the government, the governor-general has an important role in making decisions. Or similarly, if, if uh, there's a question about whether we should have an election or ask another group in the legislature whether they can form the government, uh, you know, the governor-general has power in those situations. So... In a way, the Governor-General is a stopgap in situations of crisis and is able to provide some stability and some sense of impartial fairness when making the fundamental decision in our system about which party is going to form the government. The second reason why I think it's, it's useful to have a, a, a Governor-General is that whether we like it or not, um, you know, dignitaries and presidents and uh, prime ministers travel the world and when they travel the world they you know uh, are get received as a when our when our uh, politicians travel other places they are received and when others travel here they're received having the governor general is a useful way of dealing with those ceremonial and symbolic features uh, without having the prime minister having to play those roles and so it kind of depoliticizes a lot of that you know in the united states you've got a, a president for instance who's responsible for all the work of the executive but also has to take on a lot of those roles of protocol which, you know, again, adds a lot of unnecessary heaviness to the agenda of, uh, of our chief decision makers. I was going to ask if you could recall another governor general that had 
spurred this kind of response and, and has, you know, been in the middle of something like this. And then I got thinking about that. Well, you mentioned too already, Adrian Clarkson, after she retired, there were complaints and stuff about her spending and not while she was governor general, but after in her post governor general allowance and Mikhail Jean also had issues, people raise complaints or concerns about spending while she was governor general. It strikes me, Peter, these are all recent ones. It, has something changed with the position or is it just that we have a lot more media following a lot more closely? So the things that have always been done are now being questioned. Yeah, I, I wouldn't actually know whether there's been uh there's been an increase in what's done or the scrutiny of it. Uh, I mean, certainly we've had other uh, recent governor generals where little has been said about the spending in the case of, say, David Johnston, the previous uh, uh, previous governor general. Uh, so, I mean, I suspect some of it is we probably are following these things a bit more closely than we did in the past. Uh, I mean, there's also the fact that the, the cases that have caused trouble have been uh, women as governor generals. And so part of it may be, I mean, culturally, are we more predisposed to be critical of women spending money? Um, you know, do we watch enough HGTV where there's like eight, you know, 800 shows about people, say, wanting to do renovations, and we kind of project that onto uh, the women in those positions in a way we might not on, say, David Johnston. So, you know, short of being able to get into the budgets, uh, I couldn't really comment on that, but... Uh, yeah, it, it's certainly something where uh, Canadians are asking more questions. Now, in this particular case, uh, you know, we have a very tangible situation where a quarter of a million dollars has been spent on not very much, uh, and for things that didn't really seem to be necessary. And, you know, that's that's money that's real to us. I mean, that uh, we can understand what a renovations cost and uh, what a quarter of a million dollars is. And so in that case, uh, I think people will be much more, more skeptical because, um, again, it seemed, again, uh, some of the renovations for increasing accessibility, you know, seem consistent with what we expect of public institutions these days to ensure that they are accessible to people with disabilities. But then there's lots of other aspects, like the private staircase, uh, which I think will rub Canadians the wrong way and may make it a bit touchy uh, in terms of Canadians wondering whether she should go. Well, okay, so what does happen here? We've got a minute or so left. What does happen here? Because as I understand it, and please correct me if I've got this wrong, even though she was named to the post by the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister could not remove her even if he wanted. That would be the Queen's responsibility only to do that, and I don't know that I necessarily see that happening. So is is Justin Trudeau, is Prime Minister Trudeau, is it within his role or his purview to go and speak to her and say, here are the problems, please fix them? Or is she only answerable in any way to the Queen? Or what is the situation? Yeah, well, it's complicated. I mean, certainly the the normal course of action would be for them to talk uh, quietly and try and figure something out. I mean, the idea is that the Governor General shouldn't be uh, changed, you know, short of some sort of you know, grave personal breakdown or loss of competence uh, because they play this important uh, independent role in situations of crisis. Um, But again, the rules aren't very clear around this. The Prime Minister could ask the Queen to to change the Governor-General, but if the Governor-General wasn't in agreement, I suspect it would would provoke a bit of a political crisis precisely for that reason, that, you know, Prime Minister shouldn't be able to change Governor-Generals on the drop of a hat. On the other hand, if you got the uh, the support of the other parties in the House of Commons uh, to go ask the Queen to make that change, perhaps uh, it would take the politics out of it. It's a fascinating story. Um, I mean, it really is a soap opera. This is probably going to be a reality TV show at some point on on TLC or A and E at some point. The Governor General of Canada, like the 
I don't know what other ones. Uh, Peter Grafe from McMaster University. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Yeah, we, we could, um, we love soap operas, don't we? we? We love when this stuff happens because it gives us something to talk about. It gives us something to be upset about. I mean, realistically, $250,000 to redo Rideau Hall is not that much money, especially in the current climate, but it's just the idea of some of the stories that are coming out where, according to reports, that that the, the Governor General doesn't want maintenance workers in her line of sight. I mean, I don't even, do we even, be, I don't even know what to do with that. Are we really, do we really have someone in that position who won't allow the little people to be in her line? I don't know, but that's the, those are the reports. And this is the kind of stuff that, boy, if, if it was said that there was a $10 million renovation being done, we may not be as interested in this stuff. It's the, it's the little details in this thing and the number of people who are coming forward with complaints that make this thing get oxygen and keep the fire going here. And, and the stories continue to come out and that's the thing, but it's, Boy, uh, can you think of the last time, and I guess it would have been Mikhail Jean or maybe Adrian Clarkson, but not for very long. Can you think of the last time that we had long, in-depth discussions about scandals in the governor general's office? I, it's just, it's not something we ever talk about, but this is, this is Canadian scandal. In the States, you get Monica Lewinsky. That's your scandal in the States. Here, it's, is the governor general standoffish? That's probably very Canadian. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Did you watch the game last night? I mean, some of you, if you're Leaf fans who watch the game, may still be intoxicated because of the amount of alcohol that you dulled your senses with at the end of the game. Rather reminiscent of that Game 7 collapse against Boston a few years ago. Here's the thing. Not one player on the Maple Leafs today was on the Maple Leafs back then when they blew it against Boston. And yet you pull on that blue and white sweater and it seems by osmosis to become part of the DNA. You know what? Get a big lead in the playoffs and then blow it. That's, boy. Leaf fans having a hard time of it today. They play again today at 8 o'clock. Chance to redeem themselves or chance to enter themselves in the draft lottery to get the first overall draft pick. I know which way the fans are thinking. I think I do anyway. But these are interesting, interesting times. Um, not just for hockey, which is now back, but for the folks who are broadcasting hockey. Again, no fans in the arena. So it's entirely a TV, made-for-TV event now. How are they doing? How do you think they're doing? Well, you have your opinion. I'd love to hear from you, Radley at 900CHML.com. How do you think that TV broadcasters are doing with the NHL? It's a very unique circumstance. I want to bring in, though, Chris Zelkovich, longtime sports media writer who has been keeping his eye on what has been going on. Chris, it's been too long. How are you? Yeah, very good. Yourself? Hey, I'm doing okay. I'm, yeah. you know, able to watch from home. and We're all doing fine. <laughs> we're, if, we're, if we're alive and healthy, we're doing fine, exactly. I think is the answer yeah. to that one. These are wildly unique circumstances for the folks who do television for hockey games, no crowds, no atmosphere. Um, how, how do you think they're doing? I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's no doubt uh, they probably, you know, this is almost the worst case scenario, right? I mean, for, for uh, TV networks to, to face. But 
It's it's there. There's hit and miss. I mean, uh, considering the considering the circumstances, uh, you know, the product is still pretty darn good. Um, there's a few times when you notice, you know, the guys aren't obviously there. Um, the the guys calling the game, um, usually because they tell you, <laughs> we don't know what happened because we're not there. Um, and I got to say, this is probably the first time in my life I've missed the presence of of the uh, the rinkside reporters. <laughs> Uh, you know, who have spent most of their existence, uh, you know, coming up with, uh, you know, the obvious um, or telling us stuff that we probably had read the day before. Uh, but, you know, I, I, it would be it would be nice to have somebody between the benches or on the sidelines or, you know, sorry, around the uh, rinkside just just to fill in some of the gaps. So it, they sort of missed out there. Um, I, but you know, I think for the most part, that's few. And those, those incidences are few and far between. The, the, the place where I really believe they're missing the boat, uh, and I know I've talked to some people who disagree with me, but you know, I, this 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 laugh track, this canned crowd noise, mm. is uh, it's just useless. I mean, I don't understand, uh, you know, why it's being done when they have a wonderful opportunity to to bring us the real sounds of the game. I mean, to hear the skates uh, cutting through the slush, uh, to hear, you know, the, the pucks hitting the sticks. Uh, you know, and I know there's a great, a great fear that they're also going to hear some pretty uh, nasty language. But, you know, I think there are ways around that. Um, and I think, uh, you know, a 10-second delay. I mean, who cares if the game's coming to you 10 seconds later? Uh, you know, I think that could be done. And I think you just get a much better product. It'd be a much different product than we're we used to, but I think uh, I think in many ways a better product. Well, I, somebody in the arena or near the arena, it's, I've I actually noticed that yesterday because we've heard there is this this sort of white noise. It's in the background, this yeah. hum as if there was a crowd there. But there's somebody who has a full sound board because when a goalie makes a big save, suddenly it's ooh, and then there's <laughs> you know, like someone's there hitting the oh big save button, hit the big oh, save yeah. button. You hit the yeah. What I. Mean, I, I, I you know, it's like comedies on TV. I mean, you know, we're 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 sort of, uh, you know, we're patterned to expect a, a laugh track. In fact, sometimes, you know, people don't know when to laugh. You know, partly because it isn't very funny. But you know, when you when you watch the good comedies, uh, you know, most of them, particularly for example on on HBO and Netflix, they don't have any laugh tracks, and I find those pretty darn funny. So I think it's just a matter of uh, conditioning people. To to uh, you know, sort of supply their own soundtrack, um, you know, and, and there's no doubt. I mean, if you had twenty thousand people in there going crazy, it would definitely add to the broadcast. There's there's no no, you can't deny that. Well, that's but, a staple, uh, but, right? But a fake that, crowd that, to me, just uh, just not making it. Chris, that's a staple of playoff television coverage. Is every time something happens, it's a shot of the crowd, the person in the sweater, the person cheering, yeah. the person doing whatever. I mean, uh, truly, I mean, I think when they sat down for some of their production meetings, that probably had to be one of the big discussions: oh, is yeah. what what, what, what are the filler shots? Yeah, yeah. So you know, and of course they've they've, they've had the standbys, uh, you know, the shot of the general manager and the president of the team in the box, stuff like that that they can and they those can are always gripping. go to. Um, and I think they've kind of, um, you, you know, they've, they've got a lot more toys now, right? Because they've all added cameras because now you don't have to worry about taking up uh, seats or blocking somebody's view in the stands. Um, and I think for the most part, they've, they've pretty much walked the line pretty well on that, not overdoing it. 
but you know, if you've got 20 toys in your toy box, you're probably not going to use all 20 of them at some point. And there has been sort of a bit of, uh, you know, over stuff that's being a bit overdone. I mean, I think uh, uh, there was one goal the other night I saw, and I think there was like seven replays of the same goal. <laughs> and it was like, okay, you know, I, I know what happened. <laughs> two, two would have done the job. Uh, yeah, reminiscent but, of the Joe Theismann leg break from years yeah. ago when they showed it 117 <laughs> times from every yeah. angle, including grass cam. And um, wh- One thing that I've been surprised, Chris, and, and I say this sincerely, that I've been surprised that they haven't done with all the opportunities is that I thought, you know, everybody now is doing meetings on Zoom or on Microsoft Office right. or whatever it's called. Rather than having the white noise of the, as you call it, the laugh track, Every team is designated as a home game in this. Why could you not say, look, if you're a fan of that team, go on to this channel and they've got all those screens around there and have actual fans and you can pick up their microphone and have them actually cheering. Yeah, you know, that's that's not a bad idea. Now, I did see something like that one game where they had about uh, six or eight fans. Um, But at the time they put them on the screen, they were all sitting there looking glum because their team had just been scored on. (laughs) I didn't didn't quite get the point. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that that, that certainly is a possibility, I guess. But again, you know, it would pale in comparison to to having 20,000 fans. And, you know, I think you are somewhat restricted as to how many people you can have on a Zoom session and... Uh, I guess. Although I, I must say also that what some of the things that, it, especially in baseball, they're doing is with the uh, with the bleachers, they're putting cardboard cutouts. And I came across something yesterday, full marks to the Kansas City Royals, because <laughs> the guy, the cardboard cutout right behind home plate is Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> you, had to, yeah. you had to freeze it. You go, wait, that, oh yeah, they did. They really did. Yeah, no, that was much better than, uh, I think it was one of the Premier League soccer teams that had uh, somebody had sneaked uh, Osama bin Laden into the stadium. So Oh, I didn't uh, see that. Yeah, I <laughs> At the Korea at the Korean soccer they filled the stands with sex dolls, which was yeah. a, probably an ill-advised advised idea too. Okay, let's get back to the to the TV though. Uh b- before we get ourselves in real trouble here. Yes. What ne- necessity in television is almost always the mother of invention. I know it's sort of a cliche and I apologize, but you know, years ago in the first incarnation of the XFL, when they basically gave NBC carte blanche to do anything you want, there were some really interesting ideas that NBC and the camera people yeah, came up with that many at the time to, the, to today. Exactly. At the time they were considered way out there and yeah. wacko. And then all of a sudden now we see them all the time in the NFL yeah. and the CFL. I'm not sure that I've really seen anything in the NHL coverage so far, though, that would be described as adventurous or out-of-the-box, like way out-of-the-box thinking. No, I I agree with you completely. I think they've missed an opportunity. And like I said, I think, you know, the one thing, uh, I mean, I know when the XFL first came along, they thought it would be a great idea to to mic the quarterbacks in the huddle. Well, of course, all you heard was a string of, uh, uh, of codes that meant nothing to anybody. Um, you know, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't the Newt Rockney speeches that uh, I think uh, the broadcasters were hoping for. Uh, you know, but here again, you've got a wonderful opportunity to to mic up players and and again just give us the sounds of the game. Um, and you know what? And so, you know, the occasional bad word is going to get in there. Well, that happens already. Uh, there'll probably be a few more. But again, you know, there, there are probably ways around that. If you see a situation where you know, somebody skating by the uh, the other team's bench. Well, that's a good time, maybe, to turn the mic off. You know, <laughs> um, 
but uh, yeah, I think there you know there's just wonderful opportunities I think here to to completely remake the broadcast and bring bring the viewers closer to to ice level. And um, yeah, they're kind of missing that. Well, uh, UFC, for example, I'm just pulling one of them out of the hat, but UFC before every, when they come back from every commercial break, they have that warning that it could be violence and there could be bad language. And so you're aware that this is what's going to happen. What would, is there a reason? I mean, I know CRTC has regulations, but is there a reason that Sportsnet could not put one of its channels and say, this is going to be the raw feed, watch it at your own discretion there and, and have the warning up there and say, you know, bad language is almost inevitable. Watch this only if you want to hear that stuff and, and get away with it. You know, I suppose they could. I, I think uh, their, their license would at this point um, prevent them from doing that because there's sort of a difference between over-the-air channels uh, like CBC, cable channels like TSN and Sportsnet, and then the sort of premium channels, which, of course, there are almost no rules on. Um, it probably, you know, if they thought this was going to go on much longer, uh, I'm sure that would be uh, uh, a possibility. But again, you know, I, 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 the, the, the time delay, 10 seconds, in fact, 5 seconds, probably give you enough time to, to hit the mute button uh, when somebody uh, goes overboard. Um, to me, that uh, you know, I think that's the solution, and I don't understand why they're they're making you know, making an effort to to get that going because uh, it could be uh, it could be great. If you can show Elliot Friedman's beard on TV, you can certainly <laughs> allow for some bad words. They're both obscenities, and so surely they could both be allowed to happen. Um, I saw two reports today. One of them, and they were conflicting reports, and I don't know which is right. One of them said that TV numbers are great. Um, and with hot from hockey and one says numbers are way off from what was expected. Now I suspect that those two could both be true. They could be great, but they could still be not what people had expected. What, what do you tend to think? I mean, from what you're seeing, from what you're hearing from just anecdotal information, do you get the sense people are really tuning into hockey in August? Um, no, I'm not. And I, and I think, I think, you know, your, your comment that both, both could be true is, is correct because I think they were expecting, um, you know, 10 million viewers to tune in because they've been so starved for hockey. Um, but I think the truth is that, you know, it's, it's August. <laughs> We've been without hockey for months and months. People just aren't really into it yet. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's vacations. There's, there are people who are, who are away from here. So, uh, you know, the fact that the numbers are a little lower is not, uh, not a total shock. Well, and people are, and this I found very weird. People are up at the cottage. That's not the weird part. People do that. <laughs> um, but not everybody up at their cottage has cable packages. And I'm looking at the, yep. the TV, um, the listings the other day. And for the first time in, I don't remember the last time there were no hockey games on CBC that Sportsnet, which obviously has the rights, but has been sharing with CBC and has left games on there traditionally because that's traditionally the the spot they're not there right now what is this a do you think this is a strategic reason or do you think there's something else going on um yeah i mean i think i think it's 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 part of the business strategy right you want to drive i mean sportsnet spend a lot of money on this uh this package and they want to drive people to their channels too so uh so this uh, is the moment then this is the moment then that cbc may actually be weaned off and we don't anymore see the games there um, yeah, I don't think, I, I don't think they're quite, 
you know, ready for that because um, it, CBC still does produce a, a better audience. And the reason you just you just uh, pointed out is that there are still parts of the country where people either can't get cable or a satellite, or well, I guess you get satellite everywhere, uh, but cable or they don't want to. Um, so I think the CBC still produces bigger audiences than the cable channels do. And I think as long as that's the case, uh, you'll, you'll still see the CBC or at least a uh, so-called over-the-air network, uh, uh, you know, handling the big events. We only have a minute or so left here. Um, Leafs play tonight at 8. The Canadians play at, I think, 4. The Oilers play at six, at either late game or 6.30 or something. Anyway, three enormous games today because... The TV networks could lose Sidney Crosby, Connor McDavid, and the Toronto Maple Leafs in the span of about four hours here. Um, Does star power matter in the NHL? It's obviously not the same as it is with the NBA or some other sports, but do do stars drive ratings in the NHL? No, no, I don't think they do. Uh, Partly because the the NHL is probably, maybe next to baseball or tied with baseball, the worst league at promoting its stars. Um, so that's one. And secondly, hockey, in this country anyway, is tribal. I mean, uh, you could have a bunch of players on the Leafs that literally no one had ever heard of, and they would still outdraw everybody else because of the Leafs. Uh, so, I mean, the Connor McDavid, people love to watch him. Sidney Crosby, people love to watch him. But, but when it comes down to it, uh, stars on one channel and your team on the other channel, and your team is going to get a much better... <laughs> Much better audience, that's for sure. Yeah, it's like Jerry Seinfeld said, you're cheering for laundry. Exactly. exactly. It is true, though. I mean, it's, oh, it is and, true, and, yeah. I mean, the Leafs going out would be far, I think, would be far more devastating oh. than Connor McDavid or Sidney oh. Crosby or any individual player going out. No, this is, this is the network's worst nightmare uh, every spring, is uh, a Leaf exit in the first round. Because they, they should be used to it by now. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> they, well, they not only get used to it, they plan for it. I mean, you know, when they make their uh, uh, pitches to the advertisers, they do not uh, say, well, you know, if the Leafs uh, go to the Stanley Cup final, we could get uh, 10 million viewers. I mean, they, they're not as so foolish as to uh, make any, any claims like that, they know, you know. <laughs> but, but that's their dream. Their dream is the Leafs making the final because that would be, that would be the biggest ratings that they've, uh, they've seen in a long time. Well, if if the Leafs do lose tonight, or I guess they would play on Sunday yeah, if uh, the, if there's a game five, and if they don't win, if the Leafs are out, Monday night is when the second half of the draft lottery goes, where one of the teams that has been playing is going to find out who gets to have the first right. overall draft pick for Alex Lafreniere, who's apparently a you know we all think is a great player. If the Leafs are not in that in the in the hockey still, or is not in the playoffs, I think right now it's scheduled to be like a half hour show. I can see them putting that to about a four-hour pre-draft discussion panel show. Whatever. Like, we're going to milk the Leafs for every drop of juice we can get out of them before they go away for the year. Yeah, I mean, you know, people talk about, especially people outside Toronto, talk about how, you know, they do a joke about TSN meant Toronto Sports Network and the CBC's Toronto-focused, the blah, blah, blah. But the truth of the matter is it, it has nothing to do with it being Toronto. It's the fact that that's where the audience is, and that's, that's what drives the audiences. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I could see them, uh, I don't know about four hours, but uh, I could see them pumping that one up because uh, it's their last chance to get a good good audience. It, yeah, it, something, uh, it, well, 
once the TV producers and TV, everybody else, uh, once they can pull themselves away from their liquor bottles, if the Leafs drop out of this already, yeah, they will be thinking about Monday and what they can do. Uh, Chris Elkovich, always appreciate you coming on. Thanks for taking some time today. Okay, thanks, Scott. It's been a pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast, or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.